tuned into Toby Talks, episode 40, from bedside to certified nurse midwife. Crystal Brown is the nurse for women. So let's talk about black women birthing black babies and the impact it has on our society. So for the longest of time, I've always heard about, you know, the maternal health statistics for African-American women. And it really didn't dawn on me until I became pregnant as a black woman in America. And I was scared out of my mind. And it was just this onset of fear because I did not want to become another statistic, which was so prevalent um, and it became so normalized in a way. In that process of deciding, you know what, I don't want to be another statistic. How can I advocate for myself? I had to do a lot of homework and understanding the different ways I could birth my child into this world safely. And one of those um, avenues that I explored was midwifery and what that really was about. But before we get into those details, I wanted to share some did you knows. And one of the did you knows that blew my mind in the midst of this conversation with this amazing guest was that there are only 11 Black-owned birthing centers in the United States as of 2021. And as of 2021, there are only two Black-owned birthing centers in Texas. That's, That's freaking crazy. I mean, it blew my mind. But what also blew my mind and what made me really excited to know was finally Black maternal health was being recognized in the U.S. Because as of 2021, April 11th through the 17th is our Black Maternal Health Week, where we really put a lot of awareness into the systemic discrimination that African-American women are facing and really trying to find urgent solutions and amplify our voices and our experiences. So that leads me into my next guest, who is one of the owners of the two Black-owned birthing centers in Dallas, Texas. And it was such an honor to speak with her. Her name is Crystal Brown, and she is the owner of Lover's Lane Birthing Center. And when I tell you, you will be on the edge of your seat as this woman shares her journey to not only becoming a nurse, but transitioning into becoming a midwife, and then transitioning into becoming an owner you definitely want to make sure you are taking down some notes. And if you got the Clever FM app, all you have to do is hit save and you can save these notes. But this interview is amazing. And I just, I'm too excited as always. So let's just go ahead and hop into this conversation. Girl, well, let's go ahead and just hop directly into this conversation. I really want you to tell me, why did you go into nursing? Like, what was it that sparked your mind and said, yep, this is the field that I want to go into and this is what I really want to do for my career. I mean, I knew you would ask this question, but it just immediately made me emotional. So um, my family, um, particularly my dad's side of the family was just very sickly. Diabetes. I mean, when I, I, when I was in school and read the symptoms of diabetes, it was literally my grandmother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, my dad's sister had an arm amputated and died by 33. My dad um, went through multi-system organ failure from pneumonia 
and died at 39. Mm. Um, it was my family just mm -hmm. seeing uh, sick and struggling and essentially I was nursing them already. So um, that's really what pushed me into this field. Wow. That is that that hits home for a lot of us. When in nursing school, you know, we're reading about a lot of the disparities and the health um, issues. It seemed like a lot of a lot of those fell on the minorities. Uh, majority were always like the other number one for diabetes or high blood pressure. All these um, to say that that's not a cause to push you into nursing is just an understatement. Like that's very impactful, especially when that's your life. You know, you're seeing this nonstop in your family. Um, and I can also say I've gone through the same as well with, you know, different families having uh, different family members having diabetes or um, high blood pressure and having to be the nurse advocate and educator for my right. family. Right. So when you when you went into nursing um, with the thought of your family and impacting them with the knowledge that you know about healthcare and health in general, what really stood out to you that made you say, you know what, I'm going to go into midwifery. I'm going to actually start helping women deliver babies. Honestly, um, midwifery chose me. Mm, okay. I, I kind of fell into it a bit. I mean, I um, started off and I did floor nursing and labor and delivery. Um, I originally thought, you know, growing up, I said I was going to be babies, you know, take care of babies. Um, and then I did peds <laughs> in my nursing rotation and hated it. Um, I said, okay, I'm going to do the next best thing, which is labor and delivery. <laughs> so I went into um, L&D and um, being at one of the largest county hospitals in the U.S., it was a lot. Mm. Um, it was very, very hard work. And beating the floors daily, being stressed out. My blood pressure started to become high myself. Wow. Um, I would leave work and couldn't listen to music, couldn't watch TV because I could hear feet of monitors like always in my head. Mm. Um, it actually kind of hunted me a bit. And I'm like, I got to get off the floors. Like, I have to. <laughs> this is my livelihood. I have to save myself. And both with me and my husband, both being first generation college students, here we are thinking about um, longevity as far as um, career wise. And so, okay, I'll, with one of us progressing, we both progress. I'll go back to school. And originally, I wanted to do women's health. And I thought that I was making myself more marketable by going into um, midwifery, right? But it's real funny how things work out. I always thought that I was just going to just do my women's health portion of my um, my CNM license until I actually started to witness out of hospital births and seeing these moms like being here in Dallas. Um, Lovers Lane Birth Center, which I own now, is a very heavily um, Medicaid population. And because it's heavily Medicaid, then we have it's heavy with minorities. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember moms coming in, even just with me being a student and being so happy to see me, like elated to yeah. see to see a face that you can um, relate to. And um, I was sitting in a meeting and it was an older lady, y'all. She was like 40, 41, having baby number nine. So wow. <laughs> she was used to this. Mm -hmm. And my preceptor was just talking and talking and talking. And she kept making eye contact with me and I'm looking off because clearly, you know, this is only my, 
I'm not talking, okay? I'm, I'm the student here. And she interrupts and she's like, I'm sorry. And she looked me dead in my eyes and she said, I looked for you. I looked for you. Finish school. And I'm like, okay. Wow. How powerful is that? You know, like. I mean, even man. now, like, when I see it, I mean, when I say it, it gives me chills. And I barely caught her baby. And I say, when I say I barely caught it, like, she walked in, stepped two feet on the towel, and she was pulling down her dress. And I put my hands out, and her baby fell in my hands. <laughs> I mean, by number nine, the baby should go ahead and just slide on out. I mean, it, I, Shoot, that number nine, that baby would slide out like that. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Good catch. Exactly. <laughs> Literally, play catcher's head. That's the reason why I say I catch babies. I don't deliver babies. They birth their babies. I catch their babies. But um, being here in this setting showed how much representation means. And even if you want to go and look at statistics, statistics show that when you have a health care provider that is of your same race, that you have better outcomes. Yeah. I mean, that's just plain statistics. And so when you look at the fact that black women are three to four more times likely to die during childbirth, even though we only make up, what was it? Um, It's about 13% or 17% of the women's population were still three to four times more likely to die during childbirth. But when you look at the fact that there's no diversity with the providers, mm-hmm. then it kind of starts to make sense when you look at the things that is saving moms. You are but absolutely correct. Mm. <laughs> that is the reason why I'm here. I'm sorry. So, no, no, this is, girl, you have me on the edge of my seat. So I'm like, yes, this is such important information that's needed. And I love how you like almost shifted the conversation to talk about the diversity, right? To talk about the fact that we don't have enough diverse providers. So let's take a step back, you know, share with me your experience of even entering nursing school. Um, full disclosure, uh, me and uh, Crystal actually started nursing school together in our my first university that I, you know, talked to you guys about <laughs> filling out and retrying again. But Um, And I remember specifically in that university, it was a class about 60 or so. And in that class, there was literally about five Um, African-Americans. Yeah, we were literally pimples. So if that is not a reflection of what we're already seeing in our healthcare field, where you see a a mass, you know, flow of just one particular race and then just a handpick here and there, it talks about what we're going to see in the in the real world in the community of of health. So talk to me about your experience of just nursing school and how did you navigate getting into nursing school, fighting your way through, especially as a first generation, um, first generation college first graduate. Generation what college was that like for you? Because so many people are in that same boat. It was literally figuring it out because I did not have guidance from my mama. Uh, my daddy died when I was 12. Mm. So she didn't know how to help me. Um, you know, I was always expected to be the one to get out you know when i say things get out the hood and do better and all of this but i was not given any guidance so here i am expecting um what are they called our advisors to be able to help me and so i'm i'm just taking classes you know when i was in 
um, high school or when I was in grade school in general, I always did well without even really having to try. Mm -hmm. So to come to college and have to study, like, <laughs> what is this? I don't even know what it means to study because mm -hmm. I've never had to study. I just effortlessly made it through, but that's also, but neither here nor there. If my parents knew how easy things were for me they probably should have challenged me more and i could mm. there's no telling what i would be now but trying to study and figure it out and i went to my advisor when i realized that i did not have the gpa to uh, to apply for nursing school and i'm like what should i do and so she pulls up my grades and the the university we were at like if you retook a class um, the grade did not replace. They averaged the grade. So if you had a C the first time and you retake it and make an A, then now you have a B. Mm. Okay? So this is how they did our sciences when we applied for nursing school. Mm -hmm. And so when I seen it, when I gave her the thing and she looked at my grades and I have all of these C's, instead of her telling me how to get into nursing school, she gave me a pamphlet for the community college, the <laughs> local community college, and said, Wow. Try them. They really like our students. Wow. And it was like a spit in my face. And I told her, I said, I didn't ask you that. Mm -hmm. I asked you, what did I have to do to be accepted into nursing school? So there were five sciences and I had to retake three of those five sciences in order to have the minimum GPA to get in. So I did that. I took summer one, I took summer two, and I did fall, and I made A's in all three of those classes. And I got a conditional acceptance into nursing school. And all I could do was rejoice because it was something, a conditional yeah, acceptance, yeah. you know. And then right before Christmas, oh no, right before Christmas break was over, I found out that somebody turned down their... Um, to be admitted into our into our nursing program, and I was accepted, and that's all I needed. Yeah, I needed all I needed. Come <laughs> and you know what? I just I'm like, thank you for sharing that because you know how, you know how hard it is for the roadblocks that we already face every day, right? And you know that this is your goal and your dream, and then you have someone that's in an important position as an advisor telling you that you're not even good enough for the university that you're at, that you should go for something different. And no no, uh, no shame to uh, community college at all, because I always, if I knew, I would have went that route and saved a whole bunch of money. Let me tell y'all something. It's been a lot cheaper. A whole lot cheaper. But the thing is, when you already have a vision of your goal and your dreams, and someone is telling you to look aside of that and look lower, that you don't even, you know, you can't reach those goals and dreams, you have to advocate for yourself. And I'm so glad that you were like, that's not what I asked you. What I asked you was. <laughs> what made me do that? I don't, I don't know what. I guess I just really wasn't expecting the person who is here and paid to be here to advise me. Yeah. And that's the one thing she did not do was yeah. provide advice <laughs> well yeah. it's, essentially she did but i am living here i have moved here mm -hmm. for this college for this university and for you to tell me go to a community college that's down the street from here i could did that at home 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't waste the two and a half years. You're not going to tell me. That exactly. What I have. You have to advocate for your for your dreams and your goals. And I think it's so important, especially when you go to a PWI, um, a predominantly white institute. As an African-American, you really have to advocate and not just take the advice that an advisor gives you. If you know that there are alternative routes or if you're not sure, get a second opinion, you know, and I'm glad that you advocated for yourself. So in that experience, how did your how did your nursing experience in that program helped you get to where you are now? Did you feel like it equipped you and you were exposed to the information that you needed to be competent? to become the nurse that you are. And when I ask this question, I'm being specific on the diversity experience as well and treating different patients under your institution. I do not, I cannot say if I really remember having a diverse patient population as a student, um, as a student nurse, because I also worked as a nurse's aide to finish school. So when I think about my the past, it kind of gets a little muddled. Mm-hmm. I do remember having one black teacher and she was a um, she was over preceptorship. And I struggled so much with um, trying to make sense of what the book is saying, but then what we're doing yeah. in the real world. And, yeah. you know, it, here it is back to me struggling with grades because the book told me to do this. But when I'm in clinicals, you tell me to do this. And now I have this question on a test. But if I pick what I'm doing in clinicals, I'm getting it wrong. Wow. Because that's not what the book said. Yeah. But that's not what you're telling me. I'm, I'm yeah. confused. Help me understand. And um, I wanted to make so much better. Like I wanted to do so much better when it came to my grades, my academics. Because um, I, not to say that I was failing or anything by any means, but it, I worked hard for everything I got. And it took a teacher to to tell me, and it was not my only black um, professor, that it does not matter. When you graduate and you pass your boards, it says RN. It does not say RNA, RNB, RNC. RN, it, it don't ask you any of that. <laughs> <laughs> it says RN, they don't know nothing about your past. All it, you know, you just, you just get there. Mm-hmm. Gotta do to get there. So no, she was not telling me to do the bare minimum, but she was also telling me that my mental health is important. Wow, and that's what I took from it. So do what I have to do. Yeah, I understand that that's not what it say, but you you answer questions how they want you to say. And this is this goes back to say on how the books weren't written for us, and this is the reason why we struggle when it comes to wow. hello. You know, they write the books. So we teach people or teach patients the way that the the book taught us, but no one is talking to minorities in a language that they understand. Yes. Even for us as caregivers, right? We have to do our own homework outside of what we were taught in schools. Um, And even like, as we're having this conversation, I'm just thinking about like, my experience in my nursing programs <laughs> that I've been in, I realized that there wasn't really a a deeper dive in that cultural understanding, that diversity understanding, how to really care for patients in different populations. It always just seemed to gear towards how to take care of a patient in a hospital. And then if you're in a hospital, there's a certain clientele of patients that you're going to see. It doesn't talk about specifically targeting um, a lot of the populations. 
your job might do it and you have to go through this like um gosh what cultural is awareness yeah or sensitivity or something yeah then and this is they might tell you about jehovah witnesses yeah um different faith-based organizations or people who believe a certain way or different cultural backgrounds like when you're dealing with chinese or hindu yeah exactly but nothing when it comes to your language yeah to speak because I'm sure that you will know this in the way that you've practiced, how a doctor can come in the room and explain a whole diagnosis to a patient. And then when they walk out the room, they look at their nurse and say, okay, what did she say? Mm-hmm. Oh, all the time. All the time. And sometimes you can stand in there as a nurse and you see that everything that the doctor is saying is going past the patient. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's times where I have to interrupt and even chime in and say, do, do you understand what he's saying? Because at that point, I'm now the patient's advocate. I'm not the doctor's advocate. I'm the patient's advocate. And you're about to leave this room. And this patient face is showing me they have no idea what you're talking about. And there's going to be questions right after, you know, and, and like I said, I felt like nursing school in my experience didn't give me the full tools that I needed to successfully do that. I learned that as I became the nurse that I was, you know, and seeing the experiences and then working in institutions that actually had those resources. Um, agree. So Thank you for being transparent about your experience as a nursing student. And especially when we talk about just, just graduating and the mental health of it, because we don't focus on mental health of nursing students. And I think that's that's always been my like huge pet peeve because it's almost treated as if we are not human, right? We have death in family, we have sick family members, we have you know, memorable moments that we miss out, weddings, birthdays, graduations, all those things affect us mentally. And we don't really discuss those things. And we're still trying to pass and graduate. But just passing and and succeeding to be an RN was the first stepping stone to becoming a a midwifery or getting into the midwifery school. So can you kind of talk to me about that pathway? Like, how did you determine which program to go into and what requirements did you need to actually do to actually, you know, get into that university or certification or, or the process that you took? So um, when I, back when I started, um, this is when they started floating the idea of like DNP. They, remember when they were saying they were going to take away the MSN. So to be a provider, they were going to make everything doctorate. Yeah. Unless the idea of doctorate was so daunting to me. And I said, oh, no, no, no. Let me go now. I can still get it as masters because I can actually, to me, that's attainable. Yeah. So um, let me get started. And I I went to Texas Tech. At that time, I had three choices. Mm -hmm. I was looking at Georgetown, at Frontier, and then Texas Tech. Texas Tech's program was new when I, I think it was like less than five years old. When mm. I, um, but I was really interested in Joyce, Georgetown because you could get the dual, you know, um, the dual degrees, women health, women's health, along with um, midwifery. So that's oh, wow. right. And you, they had you sit in on like an admissions call. Mm. And as I was on the call, they mentioned $80,000 a semester. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, excuse me, how much did you say? <laughs> oh my God. I, oh, okay, thank you. I hung up. That was, <laughs> we didn't have nothing else to talk about. There's, that's not for me. <laughs> I 
<laughs> that's not what God has for me. That one was not for me. So let's let's dial this back and just look at the women's health. I mean, mm -hmm. the midwifery portion. And so then Frontier, honestly, I didn't know what I know now about the program. But back then, I had never heard of Frontier. And so I felt like Texas Tech was a school. This is this is also the first generation college student in me. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Being transparent, honey. I'm like Texas Tech is um, seems to be a more um, reputable school, so I'm going to go here. And plus, it's in Texas. I'm in Texas. These things, right? Um, so it, at that time to apply, you had to have at least two years of experience in labor and delivery. Um, but you also had to be in a place where you can have clinical sites. So with me being in Dallas, that was something that was fairly easy for me to do. Mm -hmm. um, and with me working at that large hospital, that was supposed to be my gateway to be able to have all of my clinical sites. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the reason why I applied. I got right in my two years. Um, and I would, I applied and I was admitted in. Wow. Okay. So from your two years experience as a nurse on the floor, did your two years experience have to be specific in women's health or in L and D, or could it just be, you had two years experience as a nurse and you wanted to go into midwifery? No, to do midwifery at the time. So now it's more lax. Mm -hmm. At the time you had to have preferably um, labor and delivery and if not L&D then you needed to have something that was um, women's health specific like antenatal postpartum something to that extent and then they continuously encouraged um, you throughout the program if you did not have women's health experience or labor and delivery experience to try to obtain it. Okay so when you applied and you got into this program, was this program a two-year program, four-year program? How long was it? And was it in collaborations with your clinic, kind of similar to nursing school? Um, share with me that experience. So essentially it was two years, eight months. And I actually thought that everybody, everyone's MSNs was that way, our um, nurse practitioners, until I went down for um, orientation. And I found out that like family, um, family nurse practitioners only did two years. And I'm like, why am I doing more than them? Wow. <laughs> I have a, a less population essentially than they are. Um, but it was during my time there that I realized that we are not categorized the same. So yes, I am an APRN, but I am a midwife. So if you look up um, nurses, there is like nurse, art registered nurse, there's APRN and then there's midwives. Mm -hmm. So, um, we can do 100% of client care in an uncomplicated mom and birth. We only need to collaborate if it becomes complicated. And as an, an APRN under any other thing, you have to collaborate with a physician. So that's what makes us a little bit different. Um, but it was two years, eight months. It was done um, remotely. So you would... It was online, all of the um, education and the learning and all of those things. And um, your clinicals were also done wherever you chose as far as it being like local or whatever. And then they would come out and do site visits once or twice a year. And then we would have to go for what's called OSCEs to go for checkoffs to make sure like skills checkoffs. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, suturing or pap smears or you know, to, to, to make sure that we were competent in certain areas, even delivering a baby, 
um, on site that had us do those things. Wow. So were you able to actually um, continue working as a nurse or did you have to like step back and full time be in this role? I mean, because you did talk about it being online. And of course, we see a lot of organization moving towards um, moving towards that, doing the higher education online and allowing you to do clinicals and things like that. So how was that for you? So I love that you say, was I able to choose? I had no other choice because I wanted to live. Okay. Yes. Okay. I, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, Working I is an option. Is not an option. I started to mature in the program. I did travel nursing. So I would um, group my days together so that I can have my work days. And then I would go and have my clinic days. So essentially it would be me like working three days off one day so that I can switch over because I work nights. So I'm mm. off one day to reset my system and then do three days of clinic days. Wow. And then I have a day off and then I would go back. Um, that was dysfunctional. <laughs> dysfunctional in itself. Um, but you were able, right? I think yeah, that's the thing. The, you were able. For the most part, then I got yeah. pregnant. Um and I was due my last year. So I was due May of 2015. Mm. Supposed to be in between my two, the two, he was supposed to come in between the two semesters of spring and um, summer. And I was supposed to graduate August of 15. But he came during my clinicals preterm in April, which resulted in me failing that semester. Um, wow. Two points. Um, and the classes were only offered once a year. So I had to wait until the following January to um, be basically reaccepted into the program. Wow. So I oh, almost yes. did not start back. And I was literally two classes from graduating. Well, I, I and the community of Black mothers appreciate you for continuing and finishing Um, because your work is so vital in our community. And from that experience of just, you know, going into midwifery school, graduating and becoming um, a midwife and your experience, you have to tell me, how did you become the black, only black owner of a birthing center in Dallas, Texas, where you're providing exceptional care? Like, how did you go from I'm catching babies to now I am a baby catching empire and come (laughs) and see me? Man, that's something too. I mean, when I met Dinah, that's who I I purchased the birth center from. So Lover's Lane has been a thing for 25 years. Wow. Okay. Um, When I was in talks on buying the birth center, I even had somebody tell me about change the name, change the name. You need to make it yours. This your baby, da, da, da. And I said, you don't buy McDonald's and change the name. It has an established history. Okay. Uh, people Come on. know Lover's Lane for mm-hmm. being, for accepting Medicaid. And I want to continue to do that. People know it as being a place that is diverse. It has history. I have repeat moms. I will not change the name. I was was actually employed there with her and this is also where I was doing my clinicals but before that happened um, when I was searching for a clinical site because as a midwifery student especially a midwifery student of color it is very very hard to find a place who will orient you when you are a student so that's that could be one reason why we are kind of low in numbers Mm -hmm. but um, when Donna met me 
I kind of love her. She's a little lady from London, but she doesn't remember this. But she said, "I'm gonna give you my birth center. Come on, oh. you can do your your pre, your orientation with me. I'm gonna do your. I'm gonna give you my birth center." She does not remember this, nor did she give me her birth center. <laughs> but the connection that me and her had. Um, when you look at us, we are polar opposites, but we are kind of like on on one plane um, with one goal, which is improving um, the numbers and the statistics for women of color, mothers of color. Um, she's Jewish. She's not black. But that has always been her thing, because in London, that was her thing there. So she doesn't understand why we're this way here. So in place when I came here and she was wanting to retire, um, she's still employed there now um, full time, but she was wanting to retire, just wanted to kind of take some of the, the, the work off of her plate. And she has tried to sell her birth center actually multiple times over the last five years. And every time it just did not feel right. It just did not feel right. What's her words? So, um, when I said it, she jumped right on board and I'm like, well, let's do it. If we're going to do it, let's do it. This is something I have always wanted to do. This is a dream and a goal of mine. And um, let's go forward with it. And that's really how it happened. She trusted me to pass the empire over. And so um, she has passed the torch and I'm trying my best to run with it. But we thank the heavens for that because that is just, and to your point, it is very, very, very hard to find an African-American or a woman of color who is a midwifery um, or who's a midwife. And and to go back to our point, we talk about like, you know, nursing and being exposed to other areas in nursing. Midwifery wasn't something that was discussed when I was an undergrad as becoming a nurse. That was not a field that I knew about. I mean, I heard about it, but it was more like, you know, the older grandmas and older women in Africa or in Nigeria. Yeah. That bit that birth women, or if you hear about it, people are thinking they're, you know, they got sage on a tree and they just, you know, hum in for the baby to come out. And it's like, no, walking through a forest and say, this is a good tree. Let's this is here. a good tree. Let's squat right here, baby. Get the leaves. We're going to give it a herbal bath. Like that's all the mystical thoughts, the stereotypes that I had about midwife, midwifery or about a midwife until I became pregnant. Um, and I share my, I share a little bit about my journey of, you know, being pregnant the first time, losing it to an ectopic rupture and then getting pregnant the second time and not wanting to have a hospital experience. Mm -hmm. I'm a postpartum nurse. So I've experienced how some of our, how we just have a lot of improvements, right? Yeah, so I didn't want to be under a position of my life where the most critical and one assignment I have to do is bring life into this world. I don't want to think about, am I going to bring life into this world and not see that life? Am I going to have to advocate for myself while I'm having contractions? Are people going to believe me when I say something? I just didn't want that experience, right? That's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible, but it's the honest truth. Like I remember being pregnant and talking to a lot of my friends who already had children and hearing horror stories, right? Or hearing horror stories from their mothers. And it was just like, oh my God, like I don't want that to happen to me, right? So it was so important for me to find a midwife. Um, but the experience that I had was phenomenal. And this is no discredit to OBGYNs at all, oh, but it's a different type of experience. It's a different type of, of care. 
So I kind of want you to kind of go into details about what does a midwife do? What is that experience like when a mom comes to you and says, hey, I'm pregnant? What does her journey all the way until you catch her baby look like? So I'm going to start with the definition of the midwife. Of midwife. It means for a woman. Mm. We are created to be here for the woman. Okay, so when you come here with me, before you get here with me, we actually do a meet and greet to make sure that I tell you about me. Okay, what we offer here, make sure this is a place that you want to be. But I also learn about you, learn about your history to make sure that you're a candidate. Because unfortunately, um, without a hospital birth, not every mom is the candidate. Is mm -hmm. So it is, um, it is for the healthy mom that it is free of chronic pre-existing conditions. You know, examples are like diabetes, high blood pressure, seizure disorders, things to that extent. There are some minor things that we can kind of co-manage with your PCP, like let's say minor thyroid, but I've even had some um, bigger things like MS, like moms who've had MS that's well-controlled. Or diabetes, gestational diabetes. So if, now if gestational diabetes do occur, I am able to manage you as long as it's diet controlled. Mm, okay, good to know. For diet control, yeah. we do. Um, I do not do if you need meds because it's, as you know, um, it can lead to poor outcomes with the baby once the baby mm. is born. And so you do go home with a two to three hour old baby. I want it to be in the best environment so everybody has the best outcomes. Mm -hmm. But yes, we do diet control gestational diabetes. Um, so the way that it look, a mom will come in um, when she walks into my birth center. It's no, it doesn't look anything like walking into a traditional clinic. Um, there's couches. Um, it's very warm and cozy. It looks almost like walking into someone's home. My mm -hmm. sister is there. She schedules your next appointment. Typically, there is little to no wait. I feel like it is very important that you get seen at your appointment time. Unless, you know, of course, something runs over because a mom has something going on. Because if it was you, I'm going to give you that additional time if needed. Mm -hmm. There are none of the extra fluff people. Like, I don't have nurses' aides or assistants or anything like that. I am the person that draws your blood. I put you on the scale. I ask all your questions. I give you the... Um, education so that there is no things that can be muddled or lost in translation so it's also because i am that main person that it's important for me to talk to you in layman's terms mm -hmm. <laughs> you know you come into me and you sit down and i ask you so how are you today tell me you know i'm doing pretty well a little gassy earlier but i mean we thank the lord we thank the lord <laughs> I ask that question, I really do want to know the answer in time with you so that when you come in and I look at you and I say something not right, what's wrong? Mm. Oh, I'm okay, that's not true. I'm going to let you tell me that because I see that you're not comfortable with sharing with me, but I know something's not right and just I want you to know that it, it is okay if you want to talk to me. And I feel like it is okay to almost have a casual provider relationship. And I want to keep it as a provider relationship because I'm this I'm still your provider, but I want you to feel comfortable in telling me what is going on, even if you deem it as not being important, because let me tell you that. And one thing that Donna says, you know, because we're real quick to say this, what's wrong? You say, oh, I won't complain. And she says, yes, please complain. You know, mm. it's okay because then you might tell me about this headache that you have been having nagging going on for all of this time that you've been dismissing as nothing because... You know, you don't want to you don't want to be 
that complain or are angry black women or anything like that. But I also dig in and we talk so much about diet. I do a 24-hour diet recall almost every visit. This helps reduce um, excess weight gain, diabetes, uh, even just the, the small things people have with all of this chronic nausea. Sometimes it's reflux that's triggered by your meals. So let's mm. talk about those things. But it also comes important when it comes to time for delivery. How do you expect your skin integrity to be what it should be or your skin elasticity to be that way when your diet consists of noodles and hot cheetos? Yeah. But when you go to your obstetrician, you're only there actually face to face for five to seven minutes. You don't have time for that. A typical OB appointment with me is anywhere between 30 minutes to an hour with us sitting, talking face to face. Um, it could be us just chatting. I could be talking about my family, you talking about yours. Um, but it also could be you sitting and crying just because you just needed to cry it out. Mm -hmm. You don't have a real good reason, but I just needed to. I've been looking for your face. You know, I, I encourage counseling. I have so many resources for um, Medicaid moms since I accept so many of them. You have all of these aches and pains. Well, let's find you a chiropractor and a suits. You know, we go further to make sure that your care is completely well-rounded and holistic. Holistic. That's the word. Holistic, girl. Mm. So we cover labor and birth and postpartum as well. There's three postpartum visits. A home visit that is done for mom and baby. Um, that's done typically around two days of life. And this is when we're making sure nursing is going as expected. We do the newborn screen, cardiac heart defect test on baby, um, check for how's your bleeding going, um, how's your mood? My goodness, have you slept since I seen you last? You know, mm -hmm. the things that are typically overlooked um, when you're in like a busy establishment. Then there's a two week visit. And then there's a six week. That's good. That's so good. Especially when you talked about that initial getting to know your patient, right? Because you're able to now highlight any red flags, especially, you know, postpartum depression is very prominent. And it's almost, it can, it's kind of be one of those things that are highly missed if you're not asking the right questions, if you don't have some kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Mm, rapport. If you haven't built yes. a really good rapport with your patient, these are things that you can miss. And these are things that are vital, especially in our community. You know, baby blues. Baby blues is a big thing. Um, yes. And not recognizing those signs and symptoms and resources to help support the mom um, after delivery um, is very important. And, I, and thank you for sharing like what the journey of a midwife is when they're meeting their patients and what that looks like from a mom standpoint. So I would like to ask, in particular, because like we, we talk about, we have to survive, right? So we don't go into any field just, you know, saying, yes, we love it. We love it. And we got bills to pay. Exactly. So for you, was becoming a midwife a really good compensation financially, especially now being independent as a business owner? But before you even became an independent business owner, what was the shift of income like from nursing to being a midwife? So from nursing to midwifery, it almost, so this is the problem. This is what messed me up because I did travel and contract nursing. So I was not making regular nursing pay before I went into it. So mm. I was a bit disappointed when I first started because I was expecting like this huge paycheck, right? 
But um, when I started off midwifery, I started back at the county hospital at one of at their um, like their OB/GYN clinics, and I mm-hmm. was there for two years before I came to the birth center. And so I, it was more like a level transfer. And then when I first went to the birth center, it actually was a pay cut. And the reason why people are like, why would you leave for a pay cut? I left for peace of mind. Mm. I hated my job. Mm. Every day I woke up, I was almost in tears that I had to go. I had to see so many people that I could not put the amount of time that I wanted to in them because it was a baby factory, because it was a revolving door, because mm-hmm. nobody cared about us, because I couldn't even advocate for myself, Never, <laughs> nevertheless, the patient. I hated that place. Wow. I left for peace of mind. Um, and to actually just follow my heart and do what I love. Like when I came back, it was like riding the bike. It, wow. was, it was pretty freaking perfect. And I, I've come back and, and I haven't looked back. Um, and then with me doing, um, becoming an owner, it was not, or has not been an immediate um, payoff, I would say, like a uh, pay increase. But with any business, you invest in yourself. Because that was one issue that almost stopped me from doing it. Um, because if I don't invest in myself, then who is? Mm-hmm. Come on. Because <laughs> if I don't believe in myself enough to invest in myself, then how can I expect anybody else to invest in me? And so even though we have only, I've only been owner for a year, I can already see it paying off tremendously. And I cannot wait to see what the future holds. But one thing about nursing also, is that when you're providing, whenever you're still, um, this is hard to call what I'm doing bedside, but essentially it's patient care. So mm-hmm. when you're providing patient care, it's not a get rich quick, essentially. Um, but I feel like you have to find that happy medium of um, income and peace of mind, mm-hmm. work life those things. Because nursing can be very fruitful. I could go out and make more money doing different things, birth assisting with all of these people and all of that, but I want time at home. I still need to be a wife. I still need to be a mother. Who gonna, who gonna sweep these floors? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, it's finding that balance. And so I can really tell you that even when I wake up on those, mo- those mornings when I am so tired, I don't feel like I want to cry. It's not depressing because I go to, a, I can walk into my appointment and my patient will come in and say, oh, it's so good to hear your voice today. Oh, you know, and it just, I truly love those ladies. Mm. I, I, I wouldn't do anything else. Thank you. I think it's so important that you, you highlighted that, right? That peace of mind is so important because we're, we've always been in a, in a nursing shortage. Now we're like the pimple has popped and like nurses are dropping left and right and turning in their license because they don't have other directions of where they can go into in nursing. And to hear someone that chose a path that has given her a peace of mind, that she truly enjoys her work, where she can actually advocate not only for herself, but her patients, the community that she's trying to serve. That's huge. And I think we need to hear more of that. Everyone always thinking like, where's a quick cash? Where's a quick cash? And then you work in five or six days a week, 12 hours, and you on the floor mm-hmm. somewhere trying to sleep just for 24 and do it all over again. I've um, done it. I'm, I'm t- it's, it's, everybody it's goes through that. 
Yeah. Yes, it's exactly. that. And that's the reason why nursing burnout is the way that it is. Because it's so easy to chase the dollars and cents because it's out there. But what are, what are we sacrificing? We're missing our kids' games. Who's taking them to school? Who's doing their homeworks? We're missing holidays. We're missing nights and weekends. There's so much that home life is missing when it comes to a nurse. Because you were saying that when we're in school, that we're not looked at as being people. But when we're, when we're nurses and we're providers, we're not looked at as people. Like, I've had people that want to come to me and exclusively have me instead of having the other midwife there. But I'm like, if I come to you and, and go to you exclusively, that means I have no off days. Mm-hmm. That means that I have to stop this time that I'm spending with my child to spend with you. I wouldn't ask you to do that for me, you know? So it is it is imperative to have work-life balance. And I don't know if you play dominoes or anything, but it's one thing they used to say, like, you know, when you're playing, you got to uh, strategize because all money ain't good money. Mm. If you can go after chasing money, chasing money, chasing money, then you can very easily get hung up and then set back because mm. of that. But when you strategize and you pick the right plan, you come out in the end winning. And I just think about the fact of having generational wealth, the fact that my kids can have something to potentially inherit um, just a bigger picture of it. Come on. And first of all, I just want to highlight, um, I don't want my black card to be taken from me, but I do not know how to play dominoes. I blame it on my oh, friend Shan for not teaching me in college. <laughs> I tell her that all the time. Like I taught you about Nigerian food. You're supposed to teach me about like, you know, playing the black cards and playing, you know, dominoes and the games that were really fun. So, but to your point though, that strategy, thinking longevity, right? And, and thinking longevity, even in your nursing career, as your life is changing and evolving, think about how you can sustain yourself in your field and be the advocate, have a peace of mind, enjoy everything else that's important to you, including being a nurse. And I think that is so important. I think you learned that in the, earlier on um, than some people now. And I think, you know, that was kind of my experience too. Like I, I got burnt out real quick after like two years, two years. And that's, that's literally the statistics are showing like less than two years, new grads are leaving. And I was almost that new grad until I found my niche until I was like, Oh my gosh, this is quality. But I fell into that. You know, yeah. I didn't have anyone telling me what quality was or what midwifery was or and any of those things, which is quite frustrating because it's like you're already you're already been set out to fail without knowing these are all the opportunities you have. Feel free to explore them and see where you thrive. Um, where's the blueprint? Where is the blueprint? Look, is it? we're creating it. This is this is why I have Toby Talks. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing. We're trying to create a blueprint for those coming behind us and that those that are with us to not give up on their license. Um, so as we start getting closer to wrapping up this um, this episode, I really want to ask you, what are some challenges that you have faced being a midwife? Because you have experienced and shared a lot of beautiful things, how you got in the program, taking care of mothers. But what are some challenges that if somebody really wanted to enter into this pathway of becoming a midwife, what are some challenges that they're going to face? What are some things that are realistically out there that you're also facing? Um, I know that you know you are taking Medicaid patients, but you're one of so many little, so few African-American midwife in Dallas are there challenges that you see in that and the diversity of it? Most definitely. So when I purchased Lover's Lane Birth Center, I was one. I made number 11. 
black-owned birth centers in the U.S. Wow, eleven. I'm the second in the state of Texas. Are you, wow, that blows my mind. Out of 345 wow. birth centers, I was number eleven as of 2021. We have twelve now. <laughs> wow. But um, there is no diversity. Um, honestly, in Dallas, DFW, we are in a very good method. Um, out of hospital birth, it's really kind of starting to take off. The buzz is going, um, going out there, and, and I love it. And some people look at it like it's competition, da, 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 all of those things. But if you at the mall and you go to the food court, it ain't just one place. You have Taco Bell, Chick-fil-A, the Pizza Joint, the mm-hmm. place. You have all of these places here and everybody comes here because you know that's where you eat. Mm. So when you create the buzz of out of hospital and you put more midwives and birth centers there, then the buzz come and the people come because people are going to continue to get pregnant. We have um, some midwives that are both CNMs and CPMs. CPMs are midwives who are not nurses first. but they have uh, like former midwifery training um, locally and they have like home birth practices. Um, the, the difference is, is that the majority of these people, I'm, I'm the biggest acceptor of Medicaid. There's some of them that say they accept Medicaid, but in reality they don't because Medicaid really doesn't pay out, which mm. is why it's called Medicaid. And, and that is a challenge for me because yes, you want to be profitable, you want to make money, these things, but as I've mentioned, I'm first generation college student. These moms are my cousins. Mm. They're my neighbors. <laughs> like, it has literally been family and friends that I have aided in this process who would have never been here if it was not for me. I do not believe that this opportunity should be reserved just for the haves. Mm. Not fair for us. So, I will continue to accept Medicaid and all forms of insurance whenever I can. There's so many people who ask me about donations and I do have an issue with like GoFundMe's that drives me crazy, right? Because I have this stigma that it comes off as as begging and things like that. So one thing that I have created is a um, Amazon wish list. So I'm like, if anybody comes and they want to bless us or anything like that, then Let's buy something I can use. Buy some more Chuck's pads or yes. some little pressure cups or something to that extent that can help me with my daily every um, day-to-day functioning. Um, I have not had any don't like money donations or monetary donations because I don't even know where to start with that. Mm. Um, and I most definitely don't want to ask for it. But that has been the challenge is um, finding the balance. Mm. Wow. So what you've shared has just been like a, as a mom, a breath of fresh air, knowing that there's so much advocacy out to continue to grow more midwives and have more of that, this diversity. And, and like you said, it has been a wave. I think, you know, COVID also pushed that wave to be a little higher because a lot of births were isolating um, in the hospital, you know, not like I remember not even having my husband come a couple of visits before we switched over to midwifery because of COVID and things like right. that. But the buzz is not just because it's seasonal, it's because it's something needed. So I appreciate you for just sharing some of those challenges and, and what anyone who wants to go into this field might see and might have to overcome. And one, thank you. Thank you for not changing 
the population that you really need to help empower, which is African-American women. And I hope that as we continue to reform healthcare and continue to reform how Medicaid could be better, um, that this improves the cost for providers like you. Um, but as we wrap up this conversation, I do want you to give me or any listener that's listening right now that's like, you know what, I think this is the path I want to go on. Mm -hmm. Can you just leave some lasting words as advice to encourage them, empower them on this journey to becoming a midwife? Follow your heart because babies come when babies come. It could be two o'clock in the morning on Christmas day. It's real hard to go out there and provide for a mom when it's not your heart, when it's not your passion. It's going to be tough, but if you feel like you are called and this is what you want to do, follow your heart. Do not give up on yourself because there's so many people who have already counted you out. Follow your heart. Trust, trust and believe. You got it, sis. I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast episode and that you've been left with some gems that are really going to empower you on your journey. But now I need your help. As you know, I started a foundation called Toby Tajamalove Nursing Foundation, and our mission is to address the nursing shortages and high burnout rates that are affecting healthcare. So how are we doing that? Well, we're doing it through mentorship services, educational resources like this podcast, and scholarships. And currently, we are raising $5,000 to give to students who are in financial need this academic school year. So if you want to support our cause and you love listening to this podcast, go to our website at ttnfoundation.org to donate or become a Patreon where you can get exclusive content and updates on the latest episodes and so much more. And don't forget, the conversation doesn't end here. Download Clever FM and join me in our live discussion boards and let's keep this conversation going. Till next time, talk to you soon.